Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm not an essential worker, folks. What I do know is they're out there in each city each and every day. Patrick Foy writes her as CEO of the Metropolitan Transit Authority over his brave uh, essential workers, and he joins us right now. Pat Foy, I thought it was wonderful that the young lad on his way to Regis mentioned the West End line, the Sea Beach line, the subway of another time for Dr. Fauci. What did he say to your employees yesterday? Well, uh, Dr. Fauci introduced himself to our employees as Tony from Brooklyn. Uh, and the, the most trusted person in America urged all transit workers, all MTA employees for that matter, to, to get vaccinated. I thought it was a powerful message uh, coming from him. him I, I, I invited him when we talked uh, in, the, in, that, uh, in that call. He told me about his uh, uh, commute and the Sea Beach line, which is a term that resonates with MTA uh, old timers. But his message is for all MTA employees and Tom, frankly, for all New Yorkers and Americans, get, get vaccinated. The issue now is the supply of vaccines, as Governor Cuomo has made clear. Uh, a lot of reason to be optimistic with the uh, new president in place from a vaccination point of view, and frankly, optimism from a uh, transportation point of view as well, Tom. Do you have the resources, translated money and funds, to get vaccinated, busy, essential workers still doing their jobs through the day? The, the, the answer is yes. The, the only limiting factor is not money, it's not time, it's availability of doses. Uh, the, uh, the new administration is going to attack that aggressively. They talked about that yesterday. It, it's not a question of time, it's not a question of overtime, it's not a question of money, it's a question of doses. The, the, governor, the governor has made that clear. Meanwhile, when you talk about a question of money, the MTA did postpone a 4% fare hike that had been planned for at least four months in anticipation and getting more aid from Washington, D.C. Is this postponed or is this off the table if the MTA does receive that money? No, uh, Lisa, it is is postponed. We've pushed it off for several months. Look, I'll I'll quote the president's favorite uh, poet, uh, Seamus Heaney, when he talked about this being a moment where hope and history rhyme, uh, I, I think the election of a transit-friendly, actually transit, heavy transit user president in Joe Biden, uh, the ascension of uh, Senator Schumer to the Senate majority position first ever from New York, the passage of the $4 billion for the MTA uh, in December, and the administration's plan to fund uh, public transit, including uh, the MTA, lots of reason to be optimistic. Uh, I, I've been pretty grim in my uh, prior appearances, and to be clear, the MTA still faces overwhelming challenges, and we're going to need an additional $8 billion over the next three years. But the funding that we received at the end of December will cover almost all of our deficit in 2021. We're good for 2021. We won't need to reduce service 40, 50 percent, as we had discussed, or lay off thousands of people. Uh, and I think this may be a moment where hope, hope and history do rhyme. Well, there is a financial deficit that you're hoping to address. What about the reputational deficit, the idea that there are a lot of people concerned about the transmission of the virus on packed trains, on packed buses, not so much a consideration right now because they're not that packed. What are you finding in studies about the transmission of COVID, of other diseases on public transportation? So great question. Let me uh, approach it from two points of view. One is what do our customers think? 
75% of our customers surveyed say they've never seen subway stations or subway cars or buses as clean as they are now, disinfected multiple times a day. Uh, from a scientific point of view, uh, if mass compliance is high and on subways, buses and the two commuter rails that we run, mass compliance by our customers is north of 95%, single most important thing any customer can do to protect him or herself, fellow commuters and our employees. And the research indicates that transit has nowhere in the world been a vector of the, uh, of the virus, has not been a significant contributor. Uh, we're very focused on, on mass compliance. I and a lot of uh, my colleagues are going to be handing out masks again next uh, uh, next week. The MTA police and MTA staff have that. Uh, and uh, I, I took an early Long Island Railroad train. Uh, I uh, ride the subway every day. People are wearing their masks on the trains and on platforms. Patrick Foy, Michael Kimmelman in the New York Times gave a rave, 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 rave review to the Moynihan Train Hall. You mentioned the LIRR right now. What did you learn in the successful construction of Moynihan? Well, a a couple of things. Uh, First, under Governor Cuomo's leadership, big, imaginative, bold projects like this can get done. Uh, Moynihan Station is an incredible uh, tribute first to the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and and to the work of my colleagues at at the MTA, Jano Lieber, uh, Michael Evans and uh, others at Moynihan Station, uh, Empire State Development. These projects can get done. The the other thing, Tom, is there is a new uh, entrance to the Long Island Railroad on on 7th Avenue and 33rd Street, which is breathtaking. Uh, As you go up the escalator, there are views in the Empire State Building and you've got customers just pausing and taking selfies which is not a great thing to do on an escalator, by, on an ele- escalator, by the way, but it's just a striking <laughs> entrance directly from 33rd Street to the Long Island Railroad uh, uh, area. I love that, Tom, by the way. Did you hear that? Patrick was talking about the beauty of it and that, yeah, you do want to take a picture, but don't take a picture on the escalator. Not no, very I'm supposed safe, to Tom. say that. <laughs> yeah, of course, he's, he's doing his job. That. Patrick Foy, congratulations. And as uh, Mr. Foy mentions with the MTA, get vaccinated. Greatly appreciate your attendance. Catherine Hochul is a New York lieutenant governor of the Empire State in Wisconsin, in Buffalo. We're going to take a moment to step away from his whore to consider the most important athlete in America. If you are a parent appalled by the jockocracy of America, the machine that makes people one sport wonders whether they go on to acclaim or not. Josh Allen is the most important athlete in America, not because he's with Hochul's Buffalo Bills, but because he was undrafted, unloved, and because he had the courage to do three sports in high school. Kathy Hochul, what does Josh Allen mean to your Buffalo? Josh Allen symbolizes all of all that is Buffalo, the underdog, uh, the scrappy kid who never got respect. Uh, that's been the life I grew up in, an industrial area where a lot of people left t- town for decades, and you know, we had the brunt of late-night jokes because of our snowstorms. And so I, 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 we all relate to Josh Allen. He's one of us. I can't tell you enough, folks, the, the, the path of Josh Allen and what a throwback it is to another time. On to the serious task at hand, Lieutenant Governor, this pandemic is here, and already I hear talk of Republicans in Washington attempting to diminish or zero state and local aid. Can you assume you'll get that aid from Washington? Well, shame on them, for gosh sakes. I mean, do they not realize that there's one reason why we're not able to get this vaccine out there is that 
There has been the Trump administration that was the barrier. We need the money to be able to get this out. We need to be compensated for the $15 billion that we've lost during this pandemic. We spoke about this a lot. And the Republicans cannot be in the way. They should they should start reading the tea leaves. There's a reason why it's a Republican, or I'm sorry, it's a Democratic House. It's a Democratic Senate. And now it's a Democratic White House. So they ought to understand that America is not with them. America wants Washington to fight this pandemic with every resource it has, and that includes $350 billion going to state and local governments so we can start paying to get this vaccine out there and helping downtown places like Midtown Manhattan, you just mentioned, uh, start having a comeback. And so we're focused on this, and Republicans better not get in the way. In the meantime, Kathy, the New York State and New York City regions are facing historic budget deficit. Uh, and Governor Cuomo put out uh, uh, some news this week saying that he was planning to raise the top tax rate in New York City to 14.7% state and local taxes. That would be the highest rate in the nation. How realistic is this, Kathy? I mean, what's the potential consequence in terms of the tax base and wealth? individuals continuing to leave the area? Well, I think what you're talking about is what the governor laid out as the worst case scenario. And that's if we don't receive the $15 billion that we really think is legitimate. If you look at even a share of our population, a share that our state should be receiving of the $350 billion, if that is the amount approved, you know, we should be getting upwards of $15 billion. And if we get less, if we get, let's say, $6 billion, then only, and then and only then, the governor said, we're going to have to do things that none of us want to do, but we'd have to uh, raise some of the taxes, borrow, uh, have substantial cuts that would be extremely painful during a pandemic. And I think he laid out that scenario just so, you know, the people in Washington can understand that we can't have that as the, uh, the plan A. That has to be something that we don't even get to. So our best option is to have a $15 billion share of that federal aid, and then we would not have to raise taxes. We are cognizant of the effect that that has on people's decisions to stay, especially the people who are supporting our economy financially, the business makers. We understand that, but we also have to deal in the reality we cannot sustain a budget deficit that large. Lieutenant Governor, just to finish on the issue of vaccinations and the vaccine rollout, what is the issue right now that's slowing things down from your side? Right. What would you like to it's see? Oh, it's absolutely supply. The Defense Production Act, if it had been invoked by President Trump even six months ago to have the PPE, remember we were scouring the earth just to get masks and had to go to China and compete with other countries? It was disgusting. So now we have the same scenario. We could be ramping up vaccine production. So I was at two of our sites yesterday. I was at Jones Beach. I was at Aqueduct. And I opened up all the facilities in upstate New York. We have mass distribution sites. They're doing about 500 a day, sometimes 1,000. We could double, triple that overnight. We have the capacity. We have the staff. We have everything in place. It is simply we need that spigot turned on uh, to be able to give us the supply. We can get it out. We're ready for it. We've been waiting. Our residents are desperately waiting for this. But with, And we've actually administered 93% of the vaccines that we've been given. That's one of the highest in the nation. I think I heard today that Georgia had already administered about 30%. So we're getting it out there. We just need more of it. Lieutenant Governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Kathy, come back soon. A conversation we need to continue on the vaccine rollout. John, what we're trying to do is get back on script 
with investment and finance. We can do that with this guest, Mike. Uh, John, Mike Wilson has just been really nuanced and supple for Morgan Stanley. Just fantastic, the whole team over at Morgan Stanley last year coming out of this crisis, coming out of March into spring and beyond. Mike Wilson, I'm pleased to say, joins us now. Mike, you dusted off the old recession playbook and many people didn't want to look at it. You pushed it and pushed it hard and put on risks when others were uncomfortable. And it was the right trade to make through to the end of 2020. Into 21, Mike, everyone's still looking for that historical parallel. Do you think that's helpful right now? And where do you find it? What do you lean into? Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, look, I think the recession playbook, recovery playbook is is right on track. Um, you know, uh, every recession crisis is different, unique in its own way. But markets, you know, obviously look forward. And, you know, I think the markets are very clear right now in their view about 2021. It is going to be a boom in terms of economic growth. Yeah, we have to get through these hurdles of vaccination and all the hand-wringing around politics and everything else, but ultimately the market is discounting a very powerful recovery. In fact, the move that we've seen more recently in things like small caps and the cyclical parts of the market that we've been preferring, that just you know kind of confirms that even more for us. Here's where we think things are going next, though. The next step in the recession playbook is a consolidation for a long period of time. You always get multiple expansion, as earnings are normalizing out of the recession. That's what we've gotten. Then you go through a period, you get multiple contraction as people have understood that earnings are going up. And what that means is that earnings will continue to go up in terms of revision, but multiples will come down and the market just goes sideways for a period of six or seven months. When I say the market, I mean the S&P 500. That doesn't mean there's nothing to do, right? There's gonna be terrific rotation still and things to do within the equity market. That's where all the action is, it's underneath the surface. Mike Wilson, uh, good morning. The Herfindahl-Hirschman Index is something we study in finance. And, folks, it applies across all of the social sciences. And what this comes down to, Mike Wilson, is a measurement of the concentration in the market. I'm not going to go into the Newtonian math. But, Mike Wilson, you observe we are less concentrated. Absolutely, Tom. And that's part of the story as well. As you come, first of all, as you go into a recession, which, you know, we were talking about in 18 and 19, the market gets more concentrated. The returns become more narrow as the market gravitates to these larger cap companies that are somewhat defensive. And that was FANG in the last cycle. Then as you come out of the recession, what happens is that money that's been concentrated decides, hey, there's other opportunities out there, and it broadens out. And that's exactly what's happened this time around. It's a very healthy development. That's what you want to see. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a confirmation, once again, that, it, in fact, it, it's not just a new bull market. It's a new economic cycle. All right. So given the fact that that's a positive, let's go to that negative that you were talking about, because that's what I do. The next step in the playbook is consolidation and talk about potential triggers, one of them being a potential taper tantrum should the Fed start talking about reducing their monthly bond purchase. How at risk are equity valuations in that case? Yeah, Lisa, I mean, it's, you know, we've had a, a view that rates will ultimately adjust to uh, the economic developments the way equities have, even if the Fed is on hold because, you know, markets are forward thinking. But, you know, rates have been slow in that development. They've moved up, but they haven't moved up, you know, in a way that is really disruptive to valuations yet. So absolutely, as it becomes clear now, right now, everybody's pessimistic on the vaccinations, right? My guess is in two months, people are going to be saying, wow, what a great job we did. I mean, 
you know, we, we spent more money, we got the vaccinations out, people got, got vaccinated. And, and, and there's going to be a light switch at some point in the next two or three months where people realize, actually, we are going to make it. And that's when people start booking travel and they start doing things they haven't been doing. And that's, that's when the bond market will wake up. So that's a potential risk. I don't think it's a near-term risk. I think the risk in the near term is more that things have gotten a little speculative. Um, we see it all over the marketplace, you know, penny stocks, you know, some of the chat boards are going crazy now, cryptocurrencies, you name it, right? Things are really uh, going a little bit bonkers. And if that starts to fade, that could be another risk, too, where some of the, you know, some of the, the new entrants to financial markets uh, take a little pain. Things going a little bit bonkers, that CFA talk. I love it, Mike. When you talk, though, about a light bulb going off and the bond market uh, kind of getting switched on here a little bit, when you see yields rise, what kind of increase could you see making a material dent in equity valuations? Yeah, I mean, obviously nobody knows, but I would suggest that if you start to break through the levels we, we saw in, in March of last year when it was risk off even for treasuries, that technically that would open us up to some much higher levels. Meaning, if you get through 125 on a 10-year, it opens you up to sort of the old support, which is 150, and then and then you can even move higher than that. So, you know, my experience in doing this for a long time is that markets move in a non-linear fashion, right? They 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 kind of consolidate, consolidate, and all of a sudden they wake up one day, and that's you know that's not what's priced. What's priced right now is just this very beautiful gradual sort of rise in rates that's offset by earnings. That's possible. Just not the way it usually happens. You think in 2013 here, Mike? Well, part of it, John. I mean, you know, it's a little different. Like, I do not. Just let me make it clear. I do not expect the Fed to come out tomorrow and say we're tapering. Right? They've been very adamant about that. The Fed is committed to keeping front end rates lower, doing their uh, quantitative easing purchases. You know, probably longer than they did even in the last cycle. But once again, remember, markets will move ahead. The old bond vigilante, remember the old bond vigilante? Well, right now it's the equity vigilante because, I mean, the equity markets aren't as, as pinned. And, and the equity markets are telling you in no uncertain terms, as are commodities, that inflation and growth are going to be better over the next six or nine months. At some point, I do believe the bond market will move ahead of the Fed. Mike, looking forward to staying on the journey with you through the year ahead. Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley. Mike, thank you. Steve Eisen with us from Newberger Berman. Steve, um, it's maybe not evident on TV or radio, but I have been a harsh critic of people shopping short ideas. You, and forget about the movie Acclaim, have always been incredibly graceful of setting up why you are shorting a position. Describe a present short position with the Eisman grace. I don't know if I'll be so graceful on this one. Uh, so this is my largest short. Uh, it's a company called Credit Acceptance. CACC is the symbol. It's probably the largest subprime auto lender in the United States. Um, let me make it very clear. This is not a short on th thinking that the company is going to suffer credit losses. It has nothing to do with it. This is a pure regulatory story. For anyone who's interested, the company was sued by the Massachusetts Attorney General in the summer of 2020 for predatory lending practices. The complaint is an unbelievable document, um, incredibly details, detailed, uh, providing a litany of predatory lending practices that are, the only way to describe it is disgusting. And with a new head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau going to take charge soon, I think this is there's a potential here for this company to 
be regulated to a much, much lower level of profitability at the very least. When you, when you look, Steve Eisman, at CACC and, you know, what they're uh, doing, we say good morning to uh, them in Southfield, Michigan, uh, Brett Roberts and Kenneth Booth. Do you speak to the company about your criticisms? Do you communicate with the company? In this case, I have no interest in talking to the company. Um, I, I simply look at the complaint by the Massachusetts Attorney General um, under the assumption that the complaint is accurate, um, this company is going to su suffer a lot of regulatory changes. That's my simple thesis, and I don't see any point in this case talking to the company about it, because they'll just deny it, so there's nothing to discuss. Um, Stephen, is there a, a, a part to the market? So we talked about U.S. banks. You like U.S. banks. You just uh, talked about a company that you're shorting. Is there another, you know, more of an industry or an asset class that you think is, is just running too hot right now? I mean, we could have an academic discussion about, you know, stocks that I think are overvalued. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, pro the problem is that as long as the Fed keeps rates at zero and money is free, I think that that discussion is academic. Um, I never short a stock just because I think it's overvalued. I, you know, in an age of disruption, I think that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I know, Steve, that Tom wants to talk about Bitcoin, but you did write a, a 2016 essay in the New York Times saying that actually income inequality is the big problem of our times. How does it factor into your thinking in 2021? I mean, look, that's my personal political view. It doesn't really impact um, my view of investing unless something happens politically that changes policy. Um, We'll see if, if this administration does anything aggressively about it. But, you know, my feeling is that what this administration is going to do first is do a lot of fiscal stimulus, a lot of infrastructure spending, and only later will they start to deal with the tax code. So I think that's tomorrow's business. Steve, I was reading Variety. They were flogging the Queen's Gambit on the cover, and, you know, they're talking up the next movie is going to be the Bitcoin. Your thoughts on Bitcoin? The economists, as a general rule, are scathing about how governments will step in and regulate Bitcoin to a lower price point as well. Many of the banks are really beginning to experiment and figure out what to do with it. What does Steve Eisman do with a big Bitcoin? Steve Eisman does nothing with the big Bitcoin. I stay out of it. I don't understand it. Um, is it possible that it'll be regulated to a lower price? It's certainly possible, but I haven't seen anything that would cause me to think so. So I think the better part of valor here is to just stay away. I don't understand it. I don't know how to value it. And when I don't understand something, I just don't get involved. Do you think it's a legitimate market? And by that, Steve, I mean, you know, you're in Newburger Berman and you got your Bloomberg terminal, the symbols XBT currency. Do you have any belief that it's a legit bid or ask or is it manufactured? I mean, it's a bid ask of people that are buying or selling, but I think they're buying, my personal opinion, I think they're buying or selling something that's impossible to value. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about what's the, the U.S. dollar yen valuation. You know, when you're talking about Bitcoin, I think it's more like talking about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. I mean, I don't know how to answer the question. 
Where do you see, Stephen, and you know, just, just to note to everyone, we are out to accredit acceptance uh, for comment after what you said and the fact that you're shorting the company. But, Stephen, what does dollar do from here? So, you know, if we get back to something that maybe is easier to value than Bitcoin. I mean, look, I, you know, this is one thing. I, I mean, do dollar, valuing the dollar is easier than valuing Bitcoin. Um, I find the cold currency world, generally speaking, a difficult world. I, I don't do anything in currency. Whenever I invest overseas, I always hedge the currency 100%. Um, so it's just not something that I ever have a very strong opinion about one way or the other. Steve Eisen, one final question, I think very, very important, and it's just understood you or Newberger Berman could set up your own process to do a SPAC, to do these new structures of IPOs. We're miles away from lunches at the Hilton. What do you think about the new manufacturer of speculation to bring companies public? I mean, it scares me a little bit that, that you know, it seems to have circumvented in some ways the whole IPO process. Yep which, you know, the 33 and 34 Act that, that created a, basically our entire regulatory structure has done a very good job. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see what the new head of the SEC, Gary exactly. Gensler, does about it. Um, you know, I think Gary's a very good choice. Uh, I know him a little bit. And we'll see if he addresses it. Until, right. but, until, but until somebody addresses it, it's going to go on. Well, Steve, this is right where I wanted to go. Mr. Gensler widely presumed to come in and uh, get, take a tougher tone. Did these SPACs occur because of a laissez-faire structure of the Trump administration? No, I don't, I, maybe to a degree. I mean, the, 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 the head of the SEC... Um, under Trump took a very laissez-faire attitude, but I think that's part of it. But I think more importantly, it's a function of the free money out there and the license that the Fed has given people to speculate at will. Very good. Steve Eisman, generous of your time today. Greatly appreciate it with Newberger Berman. And thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.